This is Exponent Philanthropy's catalytic podcast, Conversations with Leaders at Small Foundations. Meet some of the most creative, resourceful, and risk-taking foundation people in the country. Some small foundations make bets on new ideas that help fields and professions renew themselves. How do these funders notice new ideas that will create breakthroughs? How do they find creative people? Mary Anthony and the 1772 Foundation Board devote time to talk with a lot of people in their chosen field. They travel around the country visiting different kinds of practitioners. They engage them in conversations, listen, and get informed. Over time, the foundation develops so much knowledge that board and staff can see what stands out, what is different that shows great promise. At the same time, the foundation doesn't get completely immersed in its field. It doesn't become a practitioner itself. This insider-outsider perspective allows the 1772 Foundation to see the potential of new ideas and have the openness to make bets on them. Mary explores how this work begins with lots of listening. When we first started in preservation, we were really alarmed because we realized that people were not going to historic house museums Um, State history requirements meant that young people weren't visiting historic museums and sites because of what they didn't have the state history requirement anymore. Um, The digitization of um, documents and collections meant that people could visit sites without leaving their home. The whole field really seemed to be struggling and visitor numbers were down something like six or 10% a year over many years. And here we found ourselves a foundation that was specializing in historic preservation. And we were really struggling with the idea of impact. I mean, how could we make an impact in a field that itself was not healthy? And we wanted to put our money into something that really made a difference in the world. So we were, we were out traveling around the country looking at applicants. So we... We started the foundation with $2 million, and then our founder passed away, and we grew to $80 million over the period of 18 months or two years. And his mandate was historic preservation. So um, we were new. We were new to philanthropy and new to historic preservation. So we were just sort of accepting applications from all over the country and going out to visit as many as we could. So we had five trustees at the time, and myself and we just made this um we we made the decision that someone had to visit every site that we considered before they would get a grant so we typically went out in a in a team we just grab someone else and go as a practical matter many of them were in new england but um once in a while we would travel further afield and we ended up in savannah georgia just um to visit with one of the people who had applied to the foundation for funding 
um, in Savannah. And he said, oh, you know, you really need to meet Lee and Lee Adler and his wife, Emma, and see what they're doing. And then we had this sort of um, moment where we realized, oh, there is a different way to do preservation. But the way we found him was by being out in the field and being in the thick of things and talking to a lot of people and just experiencing what was going on in the field. If we hadn't been out there doing that, I don't think we would have learned about this technique. He saw that the houses there, the brownstones, which were really beautiful, um, beautifully made um, uh, houses, and they were constructed um, according to a plan that was designed by Oglethorpe. So these beautiful sort of European model squares with with just gorgeous places to walk, just very well organized, very um, lovely layout of the city. But people weren't living there anymore and they were selling the houses for the price of the brick. So something like 25 cents a brick, essentially salvaged. So they were demolishing these beautiful homes in this beautifully designed city. And um, Lee Adler was very concerned. So he and his wife actually just went out and bought one of these houses and restored it and sold it to a friend. And they put preservation easements on the house so that it would remain in its historic state forever. They used the proceeds of that sale to buy another house and then another and another until they had saved 88 homes. And um, the benefit of this was um, easily seen because the market sort of took over and people were coming in and buying at market value and the threat of demolition was gone. So this was one of the first um, what are called revolving funds in the country for historic preservation. And we became really fascinated with this technique. And we realized that this was a place that we could um, become involved and make a real difference in historic preservation by leveraging on the market and working with developers and not against them. So over the years, that program's really evolved and I think it's been tremendously successful. Um, what we do is we fund revolving funds around the country that are in existence and operating much the way Lee Adler did in Savannah. But we also provide funds for feasibility studies so that if folks are out there who want to try this method of preservation, um, they can have someone come in and do a study of the market values in their town, sort of the appetite for this type of work, um, what kinds of um, funding might be available, whether or not they have the staff qualifications. So we fund those feasibility studies in addition to capital. We also provide um, funding for National Development Council training. This is something that we evolved to over the years so that if someone is interested in starting a program like this, they can go to training that teaches them um, real estate finance and deal structuring. And this is a certified course. It's fairly difficult. I took it myself. Um, and basically what happens is the preservationist can sort of turn into a, a developer and have the vocabulary and understand the techniques and how to fill out a pro forma, et cetera. Over the years, we've also gotten into um, program-related investments in the form of below-market interest rate loans to um, revolving funds that we've worked with over, all over the country. So I think we have about seven of them right now outstanding, and it has been a very successful program. I think we've had one late payment. We've never had any problems with repayment, um, and it really helps groups um, get over the hump on larger projects.
We've also done things like worked with um, universities that are interested in training preservation students um, in a way that helps them understand that real estate will be part of their, their future in one way or another. And we've um, financed some uh, films that explain the economic benefits of revolving funds. And we also convene all the revolving fund directors um, once a year, although we have not done it this year, 2020, because of COVID. Um, but, but we're pretty actively involved in this network that we've created of revolving fund directors. And over the years, since we discovered this as a real um, like leverage point for historic preservation, we've developed this pipeline where people can come in, get the training, do a feasibility study, um, become, you know, receive the capital they need to start a program, meet with other fund directors, and sometimes even get to the point where they're getting a loan from the foundation. So we feel like we found a really good area where 1772 can use our limited funds to make a big impact in a field that's really struggling overall. And so I feel pretty great about that. It, it's been a long time coming. It's taken a while to sort of sift through all the information that we, we had, talk to lots of people, understand the banking part of it, and understand the fact that this is basically a risky venture, real estate, nonprofit or for-profit is risky. So we had to sort of come to terms with the fact that it wouldn't always be smooth sailing, but it's a program we're really proud of. And we're proud of it because it saves a lot of historic buildings and it's built up a lot of energy over the years. I think of Stuart Kane, who was our founder, always used to say, you have to kick the tires. He, was, he always used that phrase, you have to kick the tires. And he also had created the spirit of real camaraderie on his board. So there were um, five altogether, as I said, and they would get their business done and then they would have a cookout or they would um, go and visit a site together and then go out and have pizza. They just made it fun. They were friends. It was very collegial. It was very upbeat. There was never this idea that it was going to be like a corporate type of philanthropy. It was always very much about boots on the ground, meeting people, enjoying it, and really um, thinking about the fact that this was an honor and a privilege and an amazing opportunity to do very interesting things as part of your life because you're associated with this foundation. So I think he created this culture that persists till this day. And um, we still have one of our original um, board members who has been around since the mid eighties. Um, I think that culture just has been carried forward. That idea of traveling together, learning together, um, enjoying the, the fun and, and um, the amazing amount of interesting information um, you get to, to gather and the wonderful people that you get to meet. That's, that's always been a part of our culture is getting out there, meeting people, kicking the tires. Thanks to Mary Anthony for joining us. To learn more about Mary's work and the 1772 Foundation, visit Exponent's podcast website. Look for new catalytic podcasts each month. Meet more creative funders. Benji Rue does the audio engineering and mixing. Our website is by Kwok Lee. Our music is by O Future. The Catalytic Podcast is made possible by grants from two Exponent members, the 1772 Foundation 
and the Blackstone Ranch Institute. I'm your producer and host, Andy Carroll. Thanks for listening. Join us next time.